0: Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for more podcasting awesomeness this week, uh, brought to you on iHeartRadio, I believe our podcast is out there, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and many other platforms, also on YouTube here with video. Okay, guys, this week we are doing another Rock'em Sock'em video with one of our favorite guests, John Atak. Hi, John.
1: Hi, Chris. Good to see you again.
0: Good to see you. Um, Now, this week, I thought, we thought, we've been putting this together for a while now. We thought we would actually do the deal, do the life story, do the John Atac story. Because John Atac is amazing, as all of you guys out there know, at telling stories about things. But not, we've only covered bits and pieces here and there of his story. So it's time to rectify that situation once and for all. And so, John, are you ready?
1: I believe I am.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Okay, let's do this thing. Now, for those of you who don't know, by the way, I want to put this plug in right away, which is that John has a fairly new and growing YouTube channel. And you guys need to check it out because John's putting content up there that uh, is quite good, very, very good, very educational. Um, Scientology stuff, culty stuff, you know, influence stuff, propaganda stuff. A lot of, a lot of wide range of content like my channel. I, you know, I find John's content uh, in many ways to be very inspiring for my own work. And so I want to definitely always put a plug in there that you guys go check out his stuff and hit that subscribe button because it's worth it. I think you guys are going to really like the, st- the stuff that's there and the future content. So that all being said, John, let's, tell, let's talk about your story. Where, where, where and when did it start for you? Well,
1: it was many lifetimes ago. <laughs> <laughs> and, um... <laughs> Uh, this time round, and I only believe in this time round anymore, um, I was born in in the, the heart of England, in Litchfield, in Staffordshire, in 1955. Uh, and if anybody wants to send me a birthday card, it's the 5th of June. Um, and I uh, grew up there, sort of, mainly. And, um, you know, I had many adventures along the way at the end, age of 19, you know, I'm a high school dropout. Uh, people accuse me of having, you know, a vast education. I don't. Um, you
0: dropped out of high school?
1: Yeah, I was 17 and, and I dropped out, yeah.
0: Okay, first surprise for me. I did not know that. What, why? What? Why, why abandon ship? Especially 17, you're almost done, right?
1: Yeah, well, the, nobody had recognized that I have de- what's now called delayed sleep-wake uh, disorder which means that, uh, that my body clocks are all set uh, and it's very common. It's only in the last couple of years it's been realized that maybe 20% of people around the world have this, but everybody's you know, because we're night people you know and it's the, the, you know the, the, the evil things that go on at the night. but I normally sleep from four in the morning till noon. Um, as of course did Alron Hubbard as, of course, does David Miscavige, you know, so there is a bit of a trend of darkness here. You know? <laughs> um, there are many writers, many people have this, but but it's considered socially unacceptable. And so people force themselves to live a lifestyle where they're actually not awake, you know, and their brainwaves are in the wrong pattern, they're in the theta pattern instead of the alpha or beta pattern. Um, their heart rate will be wrong, their body temperature, and they'll feel miserable and horrible. But I didn't know that that was going on. It started when I was 11. And by the time I was 17, I just could not get up in the morning to go to school. And so I was expected to to go to you know, Oxford or Cambridge and do really well. And I just walked away. I just sort of had enough of this. And nobody really recognized it. I kept fighting with it for several years. And it was actually only after I got in Scientology that I got selfish enough to go, I'm just going to sleep when I feel like sleeping <laughs> and um all of the pain or you know many of the things associated with it went away but but that that was why i, I dropped out of school also i was studying things i was uh, doing maths and statistics because you from the age of 16 in uk schools you specialize and the the statistics didn't fit with the maths part so we didn't really know what was going on i was doing economics which is not actually a subject it's a, a series of Bizarre statements about humanity that pretends to be a science, and I and the art teacher had told me at the first lesson uh, that that I shouldn't have had the place, that um, Susan Threlfall should have had the place I'd got, <laughs> and I, I guess I'm the only one from the probably the only person he ever taught in that school who actually went on to become a professional artist. But you know, what are you going to say? I failed my English exams and became a writer. You know, it's it's just that way sometimes. You know?
0: yeah funny, I funny you 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 you, <laughs> you and Hubbard both had similar things to say about higher education in some ways.
1: <laughs> well, and and I I'd, I'd say worse things than he said, I think, that that we are seeing a lot of cloning happening. We're seeing a lot of people who go through a great deal of education and lose themselves, you know in the institution, their their individuality, their ability to research you know because in the last 36 years since I left Scientology I've had a lot to do with academics and scholars and I had uh, Martin Poulter, who's now a professor at uh, I think at Bristol when he was doing his master's degree he said the nicest thing to me he had a first degree from Oxford I think or from Cambridge and uh, the you know the UK ivy League and and he said that I did better reference notes than any of his professors, his dons. So I used to feel very intimidated by such people. I've now met so many that, and and there are some who are the most inspiring and wonderful people, but there are an awful lot of people who are just treading water and not really producing anything, not making good, you know, not, so so you get somebody like, say, Steve Kent, who is a phenomenal scholar, you know, He's really precise. He's, you know, really digs into things. But he is the exception, not the rule. And you're lucky if you get to study with him. You know, my friends uh, Rod and Linda Debra Marshall up at Salford are doing a great masters course in coercive control. But a lot of it's just pretty pedestrian. And uh, and I think I keep hearing the expression uh, "jumping through hoops." You know, with my own kids, I'm told they've got to take these exams because once you've jumped through the hoops. You'll eventually be able to get some kind of education. So my seventeen-year-old uh, will finish his high school is advanced levels, as we call them, A levels, and then he's going to have a gap year to study with me, because the psychology and the sociology that he's doing are massively out of date. That's what's being taught. Uh, you know, they're t- still te- teaching people about Freud in psychology as if he had some tremendous relevance and. Historically, he does. Practically, he doesn't, almost outside of transference. It's about the only idea from the whole thing that that, that survives, I think. Um, but he wants to take time off school so he can get an education. So, and I think that is, so I would hold to that criticism. Uh, on the other hand, unlike Elrond Hubbard, I don't offer doctorates for six weeks of sitting and listening to me. <laughs>
0: Not yet. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And of course, I mean things like that tongue in cheek. But I but at the same time, I have to agree with you because I have met my share of academics and studied enough academia now, at least on these topics that we talk about psychology, sociology, even, you know, neurology a little bit at this point. And yeah, I have had my illusion shattered about uh, all my illusions about the uh the sanctity or uh reverence with which we should approach academic institutions you know they build them like these little castles and stuff you know and and i don't know maybe at one point they were castles but uh you know at least in england but i but i doubt all the all the gloss is off the coat you know because i've seen behind the curtain and i've seen what some of these folks have to say and unfortunately you're right there are great academics out there we hear from some of them uh we read some of them but you know there's an awful lot of uh just junk that you have to wade through to get to some of that and just because it sounds this is my thing is you know just cuz somebody can can write or speak or enunciate in in perfect english with all these academic terms and and all these you know f- highfalutin ideas kind of thing right i don't mean to approach this like you know an appalachian but you know <laughs> these like kind of you know these big ideas expressed with really big words that that are their own layer of protection against criticism i feel that we lose you know, something in that. And I I think that, um, you know, making it so inaccessible, making it so hard to access, I understand that you want to speak precisely about certain mm-hmm. concepts, but let's be clear. Some of these papers are written very definitely with arrogance first, not an effort to, you know, impart information. And, but, that, I mean, I've, you know, I've seen enough of that to know that people are just people. And, it, you know, whether they got an education or not doesn't change the person they are Or the fact that they can be manipulated or or controlled just like anybody else.
1: Oh, very much so. And and you know, you and I have both been through the work of Gordon Melton of James Lewis, and the the lack of study. You know, that that I I will find. I mean, for example, I've got to put out a piece about Hubbard and the occult the other week, and and I think proved absolutely conclusively not only that he was involved with Jack Parsons and Alistair Crowley's sex magic, but that he was utterly committed to it, you know, and that it it runs all the way through Scientology. Now, in James Lewis's perverse book published by the Oxford University Press, which you have analysed elsewhere, uh, so I don't have to, which is great, um, but there's this statement that, you know, some German academics, and Fritz Hark was probably the first of them, he wrote a book called um, scientology 20th century magic that they put forward the view that scientology is a magical system and and you know here you you have lewis's friends sort of going no that, that's, that's absolute nonsense although he was involved in magic there is nothing in scientology that's to do with magic david barrett um has written this you know, there's nothing and you go well hang on a minute, you're making people into superhumans with magical powers, and there's nothing to do with magic there. You know, you're saying you'll be able to make things appear and disappear, and it's not to do with magic. Worse than that, of course, and again, plugging my own work, but in, in Hubbard and the Occult, I looked at the extent to which Scientology itself could be considered to be a magical ritual. And while well, the people involved in it have no idea, because as Hubbard said, you have the guy who makes the games, and he doesn't have to follow the rules, and you have the player, and he has to follow the rules, and then you have to the pieces, and the player has to keep the rules hidden from the pieces. And so, for me, David Miscavige is a player. I don't think he has any clue what he's actually doing. I don't think he understands what Hubbard was about at all, because he spent almost no time with Hubbard. You know. He, Worked with him on the film crew briefly, but he was not an intimate of Hubbard's at any point. So I don't think he understands the Crowley background, but he knows how to keep the rules hidden from the pieces.
0: Exactly. Good analogy there.
1: But, uh, you know, I find that my work is often just dismissed. James Lewis, there are two references to me in the whole book, in one of which my name is misspelled. In the other, the author says... um, well, you know, the Scientologist is very worried about o- the OT3 material being exposed, so I'm just going to quote this thing that John Atack said. And it's my a quick description that I wrote for the internet. It's not, you know, a published paper or anything. And at the end, it says, humbly tendered as a gift to mankind. And he doesn't explain, and he perhaps doesn't know, that I'm making a sarcastic comment that this is an L. Ron Hubbard line that was used when he produced OT3. So the, the reader gets the wrong idea. But they won't go to my reference notes. They won't read me because I'm an ex-member. And for some reason, you know, if, if you used to belong to a group, you have no rights to talk about it anymore. You know, and your information is inevitably wrong, which is the most stupid presumption. It comes from the sociologist Brian Wilson. It was repeated by Gordon Melton. But if they go to, let's sell these people a piece of blue sky, there are 11, over 1,100 reference notes that they could check, and they would find out, as you've pointed out with Lewis's books, they are making the most terrible mistakes because they just take what Scientology gives to them and repeat it and cash the check. You know, and that's that's modern scholarship. You know, so awful. You know, like when when Lewis went to Japan and announced uh, that Om Shinrikyo couldn't possibly have killed the people in the subway the 13 people who died that you know and then two days later of course they found enough sarin gas to kill four million people being held by him Shinrikyo. you know now i think he's working in a chinese university which is maybe the best place for
0: him <laughs> interesting yeah. interesting so all right so a plenty, i am sure yeah uh but let's get back to the main track so okay so you drop out of high school and where does young john go from there
1: i played drums in bands for for a couple of years um
0: this is early 70s now yeah
1: yeah this is uh dropped out of school in 72 yep and um spring of 72 um smoked dope you know <laughs> took acid did the things that that were perfectly normal at that time um you disqualified drums.
0: yourself for the Sea Org?
1: Thankfully, yes. So of course, they, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that qualification only changed a couple of years after I got in. There were many attempts right. to recruit me before it. Um, and it was it was so funny that so many of the senior Sea Org people that I interviewed later, of course, had taken LSD, as, of course, had Ron Hubbard. And he boasted about this to David Mayo, not in a, an auditing session. And that I had a letter from a guy who said, oh, my guru, took LSD with Ron Hubbard. And uh, as you will find, people who've taken LSD are stupid. You know, do you know the According story to behind Hubbard, that, yep. You know the story <laughs> behind that bulletin? That that um LSD years after they've come off of LSD?
0: Go ahead been, and tell it, because this might be interesting. For people at just a little background, folks, is uh for those who don't know or aren't tracking, the C org has requirements, the billion year contract people, right? The highest levels of scientific people. And one of those requirements is that you not have taken LSD or its derivatives. That's the exact quote from the issue. And this is something that Hubbard was so serious about that he wrote this issue, which we're about to talk about, in the late 70s, where he said, uh, This is non petitionable. This is not, there's no exception to this. And anybody in the Sea Org who recruits someone who has taken LSD will go to the rpf that which is the most severe punishment you can get rehabilitation project so, force the yeah the re indoctrination the, system the it's um, right.
1: and basically the the bulletin is called lsd years after they've come off of lsd very eloquent it's 1977 i think and uh, it starts by on research into two cases and i remember first reading it and getting Research into two cases? <laughs> this is <isn't the> a <laughs> determination of what the gold standard for research is a thousand cases with a proper control group. But let's not worry about it. It's a science. Um he told us it's a science, so it must be. And so I I met a guy called Harvey Haber after i left who had worked with Hubbard on the technical films, as, as they called them then. It's amazing, they all disappeared, didn't they? Hubbard made all of these little films and they all disappeared. So the ones I saw, I can understand why. There's a great one with David Mayo where he's saying, now if this film, un- it disappears, you'll know what happened. <laughs> and, and it did. <laughs> um, it but,
0: did, it's true, it did. Is- all of Hubbard's original films are gone. They don't show them anymore. They've remade them all with new actors and stuff. Yeah,
1: because yeah. they're dreadful. But Harvey <laughs> said I was one of the two cases. I said, "Oh, what?" Yeah, he you? said you. That- no, he, no, not me, him. Harvey oh, Harvey Haber. was. Oh,
0: Harvey was. Okay. Oh, because I was like, wait a minute, what? That would be okay, so was. Yeah, that would <laughs> be crazy. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Harvey okay, Harvey was.
1: Harvey was one of the two cases and he said what had happened was that he pissed Hubbard off and, you know, by not putting a chair in the right place or something really profoundly evil, not rinsing his underwear 15 times, you only doing it 14 times or wearing rose perfume or something despicable. And... This woman had pissed him off. And so what Hubbard had done was a folder error summary. He had their complete auditing dossiers, which could be, you know, massive, gone through to find out what they had in common. What they had in common was they'd both taken LSD. That was the research on which the bulletin that excluded people and as I say, he admitted to having taken it himself, along with just about every other drug imaginable. You know, and You know know that he confessed to having been a a barbiturate addict in a lecture. He recommended amphetamines. He said that alcohol in Dianetics, alcohol is the most dangerous drug, which of course is probably true.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Happened to accidentally get that one right.
1: Yeah. But he, of course, Mm. you know, had a sclerotic liver by the time he died because it didn't stop him from drinking or smoking a hundred cigarettes a day or what have you. But so, so yeah, I, I, um, I did what middle class kids did white kids did uh, back then I was a hippie, you know with long hair and I played drums in rock groups and you know I wanted to play in yes or King Crimson, but they wouldn't have me um, and uh and their drummers were better than me anyway, which was really not fair and then I was nineteen I was in toulouse uh in, in the south of France I was there because. Um, this guitar player had told me we've got lots of gigs there. I get there with my drum kit and find there's nothing. And I get stranded there for six weeks. I very nearly starve. I have a week of one franc a day, which would buy me a loaf of bread. And uh, I'm gluten intolerant, so that probably didn't do me any good. Um, and I, So I had to abandon my drum kit to get home. I get home and the, the girl I've been living with for 15 months has evaporated in thin air and uh, her stepdad tell, tells me how much he's always hated me because I read his copy of the Tao De Jing by Lao Tzu and I understood it. And I've, to this day, I don't know if he meant that it was impossible for anybody to understand it on first reading because I certainly didn't. And so he was saying, you know, I was a pretentious fool, which I probably was. Or if he was resentful, this book of wisdom, he'd spent years trying to understand it, and I seemed to have understood it, so he hated my guts. You know, He's a very odd man. Yeah, uh, it kind
0: I... of misses the point of ultimate wisdom.
1: Slightly, you know. You
0: know, a little bit, just a little bit. But,
1: so he wouldn't tell me where she was. Nobody would tell me where she was, and it, it proved that she actually shacked up with one of my friends and decided she was going to move to New Zealand with him, um, which was... I think it was probably a good decision. You know, he was a he was a lovely guy. You know, but let's let's just leave it there. They're not together anymore. They've not been together for about thirty years, but never mind. Um,
0: but I. But who's I, keeping I, track? Yeah, they
1: <laughs> had some children and stuff like that. Um, but I, I, it it's kind of odd because I I it wouldn't be fair to say that that I was smitten with this young woman. But I, you know, it's probably just my, my ego was so badly damaged that thought of somebody abandoning me. But I got very upset. And um, a few weeks, that was, I got back to England on the 5th of November. I read Science of Survival, the first of the two books of Science of Survival.
0: I was. Oh, you started, you started with that one?
1: Well, it, I was at a friend's house and. Uh, one of his friends loved the Incredible String Band, had heard they were in Scientology, had gone to the library, got Science of Survival out, found it complete nonsense. I recruited him a few months later into Scientology. Um, and I was there alone in the house, and I was upset, and there was this book, and I read... There were, it's, it's divided into two halves, book one, book two. I read book one, and it's all looks practical. There's no... Reincarnation—that wouldn't have bothered me. I was a Buddhist by profession at that time, but there was—it was all, you know, brain and attention units and therapy, and it—it it looked very sensible. So, I went now, and-
0: I, I must ask you because I'm 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 vastly curious here. So, because this is pretty typical. You know, this happens all the time. People catch a book at a friend's house or they buy the book on the street or at a bookstore or something and they and they start reading it. And Science of Survival, uh, f- yeah, like you said, is the second book. It was written after Dianetics uh, in 1951 is when Hubbard wrote it. It in
1: June 51.
0: Yeah. And in it, Hubbard talks about a thing called the emotional tone scale and how you, you chart emotions. That's basically there's a chart. Which 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 says it can predict human behavior, a bunch of little boxes as to the kind of behavior and then the number, you know, of the emotion connected with it and what you can expect out of somebody. Right. So, yeah, there we go. So a person (laughs) very high up on the chart, you know, high number. Uh, tone or emotion and you're going to see positive things they're going to love kids they're going to get along great with their with their spouse they're going to be honest they're going to be very forthright they're going to be very dedicated to a cause and trustworthy but you go lower and lower and lower and you find more and more base behavior and you know sexual abuse of kids and stuff like this at the lower the sort of things that hubbard did yeah exactly so i'm so seeing this chart out of nowhere. And then reading Hubbard's stuff about it, including, this is the book that Jeffrey Augustine likes to go on about because it's got this business about, you know, just wholesale getting rid of a group of people you don't like, right? He talks about the Venezuelan leader who put all the um, uh, lepers on a barge and sailed the barge out to the middle of of the water in a river or some lake or something where they were all told they were going off to their own special place. Turns out they were because he blew it up and they were all dead. And the, and Hubbard touted this as a positive or at least not a negative uh, solution to that problem. And so I'm just I, I'm curious, do you remember reading that for the first time? Because I don't. I I think I glossed huh? right over
1: it. I, I, don't, I, I don't remember it now, actually.
0: <laughs> OK, no, it's fine. Um, I was just curious, because like I said, that's a. Fun, it's not It's not often that that is the first book somebody reads. So I was curious about your and, impressions I mean, it, of it.
1: it any, in any of the books, any of them, I mean, you've also, in Science of Survival, you've got stuff about a woman's places in the home. And any time that women become involved with, with business or running a country, things will go badly wrong and um
0: <laughs> yes you do i, That's I suppose in there there indira
1: gandhi and margaret thatcher and golda maya they probably did but um venezuelan dictator yeah it's right here 1157 it's in the book that i read <laughs> Bruce, why did i get involved in this thing it <laughs>
0: well like i said i have to say i mean i point this out but also and jeffrey makes you know it loves this particular quote but i have to say that the first time i read it I wasn't in a frame of mind where I was critically analyzing what I was reading and I read it and I thought, okay, that's a little weird, but I, you know, this is L. Ron Hubbard and he's the man. So whatever. So I just kind of brushed right past it. The, the, the times that I read it, but after I got out and he pointed that out, I thought to myself, wow, did I really miss a very huge red flag right there? Uh, you know, that I, mean, I just glossed right over, you know?
1: I mean, I, I, we, we're just about to uh, put up a, a... A sort of a spoken version of a paper I wrote many years ago, uh, 25 years ago, um, which is called Never Believe a Hypnotist, which is in fact a quotation from Science of Survival. And the, the thing that got me when I wrote the paper, and I wrote it in 93 originally, so I'd been out nearly 10 years, was that as if you read Dianetics, the Monsignor of Mental Health slowly, you realise that he contradicts himself every few pages. But I read that book three times while I was involved in Scientology. I didn't see anything. You know, so where he says, hypnosis was never used. Hypnosis is sometimes used. Dianetics is based upon hypno- uh, hypnosis, some of the major discoveries. But it was never used. And they're within pages of each other. Now, I, I mean, I later recognized this is the double bind technique, where you give people conflicting statements, so they can't think anymore. But you know uh, so much of it gets passed but you're quite quite right he talks here about the venezuelan dictator rounding everybody up and um basically uh, this is a method of uh, getting rid of leprosy apparently i mean it, it, you have the european ships of fools where, where they gather up the insane put them on a, a ship and just send it off jesus, I, I, I didn't
0: know that's where that expression came from jesus yeah. christ that's horrible fools. yeah Oh, oh, that's awful. OK, well, anyway, a little trip down memory lane there. But yeah, so, this, so this was your first book. So so, so you were saying I, I totally interrupted you. So what so what were your, your remembered impressions of this and what did, did it draw you in further or what happened?
1: Oh, it, it 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 sold me. I, you know, I mean, I would later find that it was actually written by Richard DeMille, not by Ron Hubbard. Uh, Hubbard never wrote another book after Modern Science of Mental Health. They're all compilations from his notes. But Demille told me that you know he accurately represented what Hubbard was saying. It's the most coherent of all the Scientology books. You know, Demille is—he's a very bright man, uh, indeed. He became a professor of, of psychology uh, after escaping and uh, had something to do with um, Carlos Castaneda's downfall. What an evil man he was. Um, but I, I, you know, I was desperately unhappy. I read this book and I thought, this is a therapy. This is straightforward, you know. and it. Uh, so I, I was cautious. I, I called, uh, I was not involved with the Christian church at all. I, I was indeed, you know, had abandoned it at the age of 13. But I thought, well, they seem to be claiming to be a religion now. They call it the Church of Scientology. You know, it said in the front, apprentice piece of the book, the Church of Scientology, that sounds a bit dodgy. So I found up an Anglican minister, and I said, um, what do you know about these people? Said, I've never heard of them, don't know anything about them. And that was the end of the inquiry. Now, speaking of inquiries, it was only three years before the British government had published their extensive inquiry, um, the Foster Report, and this guy should have said, I'll get back to you, if he'd been any kind of decent human being, and gone and checked. But he didn't. He's like, I talked to my doctor, general practitioner, and said, you know, uh, know anything about this? No, don't know anything about it. And I, I, had a friend who was a psychiatrist. You know, the evil people who rule the universe. Remember them? In a big yes. conspiracy. And she's yes. a lovely woman. She, she thought electroconvulsive therapy was a horrible thing to do to people. You know, she. So, but I, so I found her up, and she said, I, I, I don't know anything about them. And so, went, well. I, Okay, I'll go along. And I went there, and uh, and this was nineteen seventy-five. Yeah, this was uh, the eleventh of December nineteen seventy-four.
0: Moved to the eleventh of incident. December nineteen seventy-four. Yeah, that's right. That was my birthday, dude. <laughs> ah, that's funny. Well, I think it's <laughs> your fault. That's funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. It was in
1: nineteen seventy-four.
0: Yeah, four years old. That was your my four fourth years birthday. Born
1: in 1970.
0: That's oh, right, that's and sweet. that that um, also was around the time that my parents got involved in Scientology because I was four years old when they got involved. So it was oh, sometime wow. within that time period too. So interesting. Maybe so they I was were
1: celebrating starting... celebrating your birthday, as I obviously <laughs> yeah, was.
0: Right.
1: And I I went to the Mosley Birmingham mission or franchise, they were still occasionally called franchises then, more accurately, of the Church of Scientology. And there were these great people. They'd all graduated from, recently graduated from Bournemouth Polytechnic, which would later become a university. Um, They had kind of arts degrees, you know, and they were just these smiley, happy, lovely people. And within a couple of weeks, I'd moved into the house where they lived, and they couldn't they wanted to hire me you know they wanted me on staff but the people who owned the mission Don and Stephanie Ryburn were away and they prohibited them hiring anybody so that was my first lucky break <laughs> you know?
0: Now, I let me have. ask you let, let me ask you about this because because um, I'm I, again really intensely curious here. So you read the book, you have a positive impression you go check you do your, you do your deal diligence and everybody's like, I don't know. So you go, mm-hmm. okay, cool, call them up. let's go check it out. So you walk into this place for the first time. This is a mission. It's staffed by these people from the Polytechnic Institute. but what did it look like? How many people were there? What, what was the size of the place?
1: Um, It was relatively small. They they had, as I remember, a course room, the office that the executive director, Jill Pessish, was in, and I think a couple of other rooms. And um, the course room would probably take about 20 people. Um, And, you know, so they'd have a couple of auditing rooms, and they'd often actually go around the corner to the house, um, which, again, the Ryburns owned and where they lived and and used rooms there. We had to go around there to do TR8 if we were going to shout stash trays, They didn't want anybody to know. As far as I remember, there were only two people there when I arrived in the afternoon. And um, I was told that what I'd have to do was read this book, Dianetics, and Monsignors Mental Health, and it was a pound. And I didn't have a pound. I'd, <laughs> I'd had my train fare, my bus fare, my return, and that was it. And so I said, well, I- I'll come in tomorrow and bring you the pound. And it was like, no, 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 no. We can't let you have anything. So that was a little bit of a warning sign. They don't trust people. And instead they gave me two copies of what was called Advance magazine about Ron Hubbard being Mettea or Maitreya, the the Buddha who will end the universe by taking everybody into Nirvana. And uh, I'd never heard of this and I'd been involved with Zen Buddhism for a couple of years and um, it was absolutely the wrong thing to give me. I immediately, when I got home, wrote a letter to the Pali Text Society to say, this thing says a red-headed man will arise two and a half thousand years after the Buddha and become the Maitreya, um, and he will be a Westerner." What can you tell me? And I got a letter back the next week saying, this is abject nonsense, it's a reference to the Book of the Great Decease, which has no prediction of date, says nothing about him being red-haired, and says... Nothing about him being in the West. It is pretty much a myth, you know, which some of the Tibetans still believe, you know. Um,
0: okay, interesting. Interesting. I mean, I and, and, and that act alone, by the way, I'm just going to throw this out there, puts you about above about 99% of the rest of the people who heard that bullshit, including me. You know, and I've always got the excuse I could fall back on that I was raised with this shit. But still, it gives you know, even then, that they didn't even fact check that. They no. just went, "Oh, it's something some legend out of the east." Well, I clearly don't know anything about that, so what they're telling me must be true. And I, oh. <laughs> I bought all that Buddha stuff, hook, line, and sinker when I was
1: there. I got two good stories about that. Um, one of them is. Um, I interviewed, uh, John Sanborn. John Sanborn was the head of publications from 1954 to 1978 when he was asked to transfer another million dollars into Owen Hubbard's bank account. And he said, I've had this, I've been living on $5 a week for 24 years. And this guy is, you know, living the life of Riley at my expense, but he edited every book, you know, all of the tech volumes, everything that came out, John did. And I, he was a lovely guy, he was a really smart guy, and he did a very good job with the books, all things considered. But he said Hubbard, the, one of the first things Hubbard gave him was Him of Asia in 1954. And... Um, in 1954? Uh, 1954,
0: 1954,
1: and said, here, this is my poem. And... Now, uh,
0: that's fascinating. I thought it was much later than that, interesting. He, spent,
1: he held on to it for 20 years, because he couldn't stand it. Because he said, it said, I am Matea. And then he had this realization that if he changed the wording and said, am I Matea, that he could live with it. And so he published it in a beautiful edition, I think, you know, the prettiest of all the Scientology books. But um, if you see me dead, I will then live forever, but you will see a world in flames, all this abject nonsense. The other story, however, in um, 1982, a man called Bram McKee uh, gave testimony at the Clearwater hearings in Florida. And he had been a Scientologist, involved with Scientologist, Scientology for 25 years, I think. And it was a very sad story. It was, about, it was about his wife developing cancer and basically being told, there's nothing we can do to help you, and them ending up in some clinic in Mexico where the whole waiting room was full of Scientology OTs. You know. All these people who, you know, because they hadn't gone and got proper medical treatment immediately, they degenerated and and become terminal. Um, But he said, he said, I was a physicist, and so I knew that what Hubbard was saying about physics was nonsense, but I was really interested by what he was saying about Buddhism. (laughs) Okay, well, I was a Buddhist, and I knew what he was saying about Buddhism (laughs) was nonsense, but it's really interesting what he said about physics.
0: Right, that's how it works. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and then you see Hubbard writing about gamma rays and things like that, and you go, Oh dear, you know, he didn't he didn't understand anything. He just he, it's this thing that Hubbard said that all you have to do is adopt the beingness and then you are the thing, you know. So you just say, I'm the world's greatest philosopher. You don't have to actually study Schopenhauer and Nietzsche or any of that stuff. You just proclaim yourself, and that's pretty much what he did. His study of most things was was pretty shallow, you know, having followed in his footsteps to see what he was reading.
0: You but know, I have like, to comment right now, just because the parallel is so obvious, and it, and it really should be said out loud, is that's, I think that was the, was the number one lesson that David Miscavige learned from L. Ron Hubbard, because when he took over Scientology, he was on a wing and a prayer, but that didn't stop him because he had realized that power is assumed. We see, you know. Anyway, I just had to comment on that because I thought that was—I've never heard anybody put it exactly the way you just put it—and I thought that that was very spot on and a, and a great description of young David Miscavige taking over the church and going hell bent for leather, despite not really having a clue what he was doing.
1: Not really having any education at all, you know, having right. dropped out of school at the age of thirteen and um, taking a huge amount of corticosteroids. Um, to, to deal yeah. with the asthma, you know, poor, poor man. Um, That's but, but, you know, and we have stories of him at age 14 being quite brutal and what he's 17 when he's on Hubbard's crew. When I interviewed um, Didi D- Vogadin, who'd been his boss, when he was action chief, she said the thing with David was that, that if you needed something done, he was incredible. You'd say, David, that wall there means knocking down. He would lower his head and charge. And, uh, you know sad for many people and, 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 he's, he's hurt many people, but, but there you go. So yeah, I, I, I did check, but, but the, the, the people I met were great. Um, you know, Dylan's Zoran Pessish, uh, Linda Harrington, um, Eddie, Eddie had a, he, he was a glass engraver and he ended <laughs> up, yeah, it's a very, wow. difficult, very difficult thing to do. And, uh, his, His wife was Jenny Wiggins. They they were just these lovely people. Um, Fred Allback, who later ended up on David Mayo's staff. And I, you know, I I did some questions for our channel the other day that a friend had sent me. And, And he said, you know, was there anything I regret about having left Scientology? And I found myself in tears, kind of going, yeah, these people, these wonderful people, who then spent their lives, several of them, trapped in the sea organization. You know, people who, who are talented and and good, you know, who who just were turned into part, you know, cogs in this machine for enslaving people psychologically and taking all their money away from them. You know, that that I do regret. Nothing nothing else, you know. Um the, you know, that camaraderie. So the, they were great and I, you know, did you know? I went back the next day with my pound and read. Despite Dynastic.
0: the Buddhist nonsense, you. you well, I, oh, I that took letter. a week for you to find out. That took a yeah. week for you to find. Yeah, so you went back the next day and you did get the book.
1: Yeah, and and my yeah. thought, my thoughts was was really, you know, he's a man, he's fallible. They'd shown me that he said that. Um, this looks like it might work, and. You know, why on earth? I mean, Dianetics, and Modern Science of Mental Health, is one of the most dreadful books ever written. It's a mess. But you know, there's that thing that when you can't quite grasp something, you think it might be too clever for you. And it's yes. the common aspect of, of the psychopath is that they cannot express themselves properly in language. And so they speak gibberish frequently. And you start thinking, oh, when I'm more advanced in the teaching. I will understand what the master says. And I did finally come to understand what the master says. And it's um, basically give me your money, give me your life, and uh, give me your children. And uh, I w- I will uh, consume all of those things, you know.
0: Right. So you, okay, so you go down there, you got Dianetics, you've read Science of Survival. Mm-hmm. Even after sorting out the Buddha thing, you're like, okay, well, let's get to it. Yep. So... How far do you go? What happens at this mission?
1: Well, I, I did the uh, communication course, the training routines. I, I did the basic dictionary course. That was free. It's the only free thing I ever got. Inside. Oh, I, I, I did a personality test, free personality test. And it was actually um, assessed by Linda Harrington. It later become Linda Jones. Lovely woman. I think she had a degree in English. And, um, She said something that it took me 10 years to get the answer to. She said that she wasn't going to do the usual evaluation on this. And I've still got the personality test because I'm a bit of a hoarder and I'm running at kind of 90% along the top. Oh, And it's only when I saw the manual that I realized she could drop me to minus 90 because everybody's below death.
0: Right right so So how did she what did she tell you
1: she basically told me i was in really good shape but scientology would help me to to help other people and, and to be in better shape and my particular you know i was focused on just one thing which was that i was traumatically upset about my girlfriend leaving me and that was never once in the nine years i was in scientology it was never once addressed in any way you know time you know a year later i wasn't thinking about that anymore you know as is normal with human beings. Uh, So, unless of course they're Dante Alighieri, in which case, having seen a tiny (laughs) girl, they're obsessed for the rest of their lives, but I'm not like that, Um, thankfully. Um, I also don't have his genius, which is a bit disappointing, but there you go. I I just have to live with it.
0: Yes, it's these burdens we have to carry, I understand.
1: It's true, (laughs) I did the, the Hubbard qualified Scientologist course and, um, to my amazement, my mother followed me in. She, um, when I was away, she went in to check cause it's only I don't know 15 or 20 miles away from where we lived. She went in to check that it was okay, that it wasn't some kind of nasty cult group or something. And uh, walked into a courtroom where somebody was going off with his head to somebody else and kind of went, this is for me. And, uh, she stayed in for eight years too. Um, so i decided you know i want to do this properly i i want to go so i went to the manchester organization and i went to st hill outside east Grinstead, south of london
0: hey, are we still the, talking about the 75 76 time period Have we is, moved to 76
1: this is 75 so i've been involved yeah. for a few months and okay. um i want to to go and train as an auditor and um you know, see what I can do with this. There are various offers for me to join staff, of course, and I push them all away because I've decided that I'm more useful if, you know, once I've trained and done this thing. And there was no technical training call back then. Um, uh, so was, in like, other words, I,
0: staff members who train full time to get technical positions like auditors and supervisors and staff counseling. Yeah, well, exactly. Meant to be
1: counseling positions.
0: So um, you'd gotten some you'd gotten some taste of auditing others as well as yourself getting some auditing when you did that HQS course. That's sort of a, I call that course sort of a a, a survey of basic Scientology principles is kind of what that course is about. So you'd done that, gotten your feet wet and then wanted more.
1: Yes. And so I, I went to Manchester organization to look at that. It was a condemned building with um, purple walls and two very desperate people in it and <laughs> I decided that that probably wasn't the place for me
0: yeah you think
1: <laughs> i went down to um east Grinstead and in the the cab this was august 75 in the cab ride the um the driver said oh, you got to watch these people they take you into the cellar and give you electric shocks so that was how ron hubbard had developed you know, friendly relations with the public and the environment in East Grinstead. Um, and I would later frequently be congratulated by the non-Scientology public of, of East Grinstead for having stood up against them. And the stories about you know, what had happened in the 60s when Hubbard was there were just outrageous. Um, and I got them from the people that had been done to. You know. um,
0: but while you were, While you were there or did that all come later?
1: most of it after I left, I mean, I I made friends with various townspeople while I was involved and um, they would be, you know, we're not going to talk about Scientology. We like you, (laughs) but we don't want anything to do with them. And that was the general feeling in the town. So um, there was a bookseller there who I I became quite close friends with over the years. And he was an anthroposophist, um, Henry. And and he,
0: uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, a what?
1: An anthroposophist, a follower of Rudolf Steiner. It's an offshoot of Theosophy. Uh, the headquarters, oh. is five miles out of East Grinstead, in a village called Forest Row. And got they've it. got they've got their own architecture. They um, they have biodynamic agriculture. If you drink water, it's got to have been through the figure eight. Ah, uh, you stir your soil at midnight with a sheep's head if you want your crops to grow. They've got some quite interesting things. They wear no plastic; they only wear natural fibres, and they're basically fairly gentle, hippie-ish sort of people with some very bizarre beliefs. Um, but they make good vegetables, and and the the not the people, the the stuff they grow, you know. With <laughs> yes. The yes. And they. <laughs> Their houses are really quite beautiful. The Steiner houses are really, you know, they're all curves. They don't have straight lines in them. They're a bit like um, this sort of place you'd expect a hobbit to live in and the sort of people <laughs> you'd expect the hobbits to be, frankly. Um,
0: Interesting.
1: They believe that they have a guardian on their shoulder that, um, I loved their use of the word guardian, having seen Jane Kemba and what the guardians have said, that, that instructs you. It's a bit like, there's a Walt Disney movie where I think Goofy has an angel and a devil or On on each shoulder, it's a bit like that, Um, a bit like Walt Disney in general, frankly. But without (laughs) the cocaine, obviously, which uh, anthropophiles don't do. But uh, Henry Golden, you know, was was a friend of mine, and and I, I, there was another bookseller there, a guy called John Woods, and they really liked me, but they hated Scientology. So, but then after I left, there, there were shopkeepers there who'd shake my hand and say, you know loved your book and thank you for standing up against these people and you found out how they'd infiltrated things like the christmas lights committee so that east Grinstead puts up light, you know lights at christmas and they'd actually i talked with I think it was maria flint that that she'd actually got onto the committee and they managed to put up these scientology crosses <laughs> they tricked them and uh, they, they were, the townspeople were not very happy Um, yeah
0: they don't people don't like being lied to it's kind of funny no i think um, you've commented on that a couple times (laughs) i
1: have noticed it from time to time so around it must have been september 75 i moved with my girlfriend my then girlfriend who would later become my first wife and the mother of my first two children um we moved down and we arrived at the house of felix patel it's all coming back to me now and um which is my lodging. You know, this had been arranged for me by St. Hill. And it's sort of 1030 at night and we knock on the door and this guy takes one look at me and says, you're not staying here because I've got long hair. And uh, he was in the guardian's office. So he was a highly ethical person and couldn't have a long haired person. So at 1030 at night, I have to try and find somewhere to stay. And uh,
0: he wouldn't let you stay at his place that had been arranged by the church for you to stay there because you had long hair is that is that really what it was like in the 70s yep god damn man god uh, damn but it, it Okay, it please continue
1: changes <laughs> from, from century to century you know and my, my dad used to say you know how girly it was to have long hair and i'd say well, what about jesus you know but apparently uh, it's all right if you lived in palestine at a particular time um <laughs> Wasn't making any other comparison. I didn't have a beard or sandals, <laughs> Right. Um
0: Your dad's like, Yeah, you're not committed enough. You wanna you wanna convince me grow a beard? Yeah, let's see some yeah, let's yeah. see some, you know, sandals yeah. and robes, you know.
1: John the Baptist to baptize me. <laughs> right. Um so I, I moved down there. I went on course full time, I did the Hubbard Order Auditor course, which is what would later become the Neurodynetic Auditor Course and would move in its place. Um, I did. Sort of
0: advanced level Dianetics is what we would call it at this point with using an e meter because it's it's like that. It, yeah. It, it, it incorporates that into it. The The first uh, Dianetics, the book Dianetics and the stuff that's done out of that book is is simpler, a lot easier, and it doesn't have anything to do with using the e meter as far as like, and, the and was all, if, if, you know, of these things.
1: And was all canceled in 1951 by Hubbard because it was hypnotic.
0: Right. Well, yeah. In there's the book that too, but, Survival.
1: And yeah. was reintroduced in 1977, including the fluttering of the eyelids and all the hypnotic things that he complained about. Um, as I say, never believe a hypnotist. We're putting that up sometime in the next week, and it'll bore the hell out of anybody because it's two hours of rant about Hubbard talking about hypnosis. But he, he – so, yeah, the course I did was the one with the e-meter, which would, would later become the <clears throat> new new era Dianetic Auditor course. Um and I did the Method One course, I did um, class zero, class one, and then um, a woman called Ivis Bolger, who sounds looks like she sounds, and, and wore jack boots, which I, I you know the navy uniforms that really bothered me from the start. It was like this is this looks to me like kind of Berlin in nineteen thirty four, you know, this
0: is this is oh, not. Right. We should be clear with people out there about something. St. Hill is manned by Sea Org members. It's not a regular, like the London church or the Manchester church or the Detroit church or the local Denver church here. Those are manned by staff who just sign little contracts for a couple of years. St. Hill was a major, it is the major base of operations for Scientology in England, and it is a Sea Org base. So, yeah, Yeah, you were seeing uniforms and stuff. What do you think about all that?
1: I I thought it was crazy. Uh, um, Did you say that?
0: Did you ever ask about it?
1: I don't remember having any conversations about it, which is odd for me. Mm -hmm. Um, There were (laughs) a couple of hundred people on the staff there, and, you know, they, they didn't wear their campaign medals, which I would have asked about because, of course, it's a criminal offense both in the U.S. and here to wear campaign medals unless you've earned them uh, in the military. So interesting. Um, these little ribbons, which is like successfully managed to go to the toilet Yeah, one for that. And the uh, how to write your name course and the, you know, I mean, whatever.
0: Yes. But you can I, get a lot of campaign ribbons very quickly as a Sea Org member. That is true.
1: I, I, I went and I did these courses. I, I ended up working as a painter and decorator to make a living which was uh, pretty strange, I um, started writing scripts. I was, nine, I was 20, and I, I had the BBC take a, a play script to the final reading. And Granada TV said that they would have taken one of my scripts if they hadn't commissioned one on school holidays you know, a week before. So I got that far, trying to develop a career as a writer, and then... Um, I ran into Ivis Bolger and Ivis Bolger decided that because I had an unpaid fine of about 30 pounds, um, that I was a criminal. <laughs> and so she took me off course, uh, which was quite a favor because I, I just decided I didn't want to be there anymore. There there were various people there who were bullying and aggressive, which, which I, you know, I didn't respond to, you know, it's, it, I don't like being bullied. Um, and so I could name some names here, but I'd probably better not because some of them might still be alive. But there was generally this push to get statistics, this this get money out of people, hard selling. Um, you know, the registrars, the salespeople were really nice and uh, they wanted your money. And, and just the whole atmosphere seemed wrong to me. So I left in February 77. I just went back to Midlands, where I, you know, stayed with my parents for a little while, sort of things out. And I had two years where I really wasn't very involved. I went to art college, which was great. I uh, studied painting, made a very meagre living for four years after leaving college as a painter, largely due to the help of my friends and family more than prolific sales. But I was – I went back to – you know, I helped uh, – I bought – I Bought a couple of houses, you know, which is to say I got mortgages and paid up a thousand pounds in deposit. And the, the housing market was moving. So from the first house I, I had a thousand pounds profit, which I put into the second house, which which I spent three years renovating, and then gave the you know three and a half thousand pounds that I'd made to Scientology to buy the OT levels. And um and meanwhile had been pulled back into Scientology in Manchester, which now, you know, in in fact, I was in charge of the renovation of the Deansgate building. So um, if you want to see a suppressive edifice, this is a five-storey bank building, and we had, uh, I think it was four weeks, and because the guy running it, who would rather not be named publicly, because he's a well-known figure now, um, lovely guy he managed to take it from nothing to 38 staff in this building with hundreds of people coming through and i had four weeks because he'd seen that i was renovating my house and he'd, he'd done the conversation we talked about earlier where he'd said well what are the problems you're having with scientology and you know, i bitched for a little while and he'd say it's oh, terrible it's terrible it's terrible why don't you come up to, to manchester and give me some of your money um and i was renovating a house so he made me the renovations in charge for this building. And I had all of the crew, the 38 crew, so they'd worked through the day for him and they'd worked through the night making a mess of this building because they were largely, utterly incompetent. And they got a sea organisation mission, uh, Phil Stannard and Alan Bailey, who were both lovely people, uh, though Alan did try and kill me at one point because I told him off because his crew had ruined their brushes one night because they decided to use them to stab the painter. And as I was in charge of buying new brushes and stuff, they just wasted his stuff. And I told him off and he bunched his fists and started coming towards me. But uh, Phil, Phil, I, I, you probably don't know the legend of Phil Stanard. He he, he, was, uh, he was run over when he was 11 years old and lost a leg. So he had a prosthetic leg. And um, he was quite a good guitar player. And uh, he'd been L. Ron Hubbard communicator at... Uh, and was apparently busted because he decided that part of the routing form for young women joining the Sea Org was to have sex with him. So the legend has it. So uh, there was a little bit of uh, explanation going on there.
0: Whoa. Possibly, yeah. I don't know if that's
1: true. It's an allegation that's made. Phil left a long time ago. Um, but but they they were there and we were running this thing and. We had the office of L. Ron Hubbard and, to make and all of this stuff, no money. And I had to tell the staff that they could not put copies of the auditor on the floor to soak up the water because there were pictures of L. Ron Hubbard on it. We mustn't be treading on pictures of L. Ron Hubbard. God, imagine that. Um, but I, I went from Manchester back down to St. Hill. I did um, what I, I was declared natural clear question 46 on on the list uh, in manchester have you always been clear Needle floats yes you've always been clear which theoretically and i've said this elsewhere means you're also natural ot3 because if you weren't here when the r6 bank the active mind was implanted 75 million years ago if you're a natural clear you don't have it and where would you hmm. have got the body thetans from because you weren't implanted with the body thetans either so this is a I can see you're very puzzled by this, you know.
0: Well, you know, I'm only going to push back a little bit because um, because I know that Hubbard actually wrote that body thetans are not just a phenomenon of OT3. So, but They are, so you but, could... but
1: the R6 bank is. And mind, that's, that's
0: what's surprising to me. That's the one I went, oh really? Because I didn't know that that was the case, and that interests me. So I'm gonna I'm gonna look into that more because I thought there was well, something earlier to that. But but I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying I'm fascinated by that piece of information, and I'm gonna look into that.
1: In incident two
0: is is the four the... quadrillion years ago thing. The, and well, that's first I... first entry into the physical universe. But that's not when the bank is created. I thought there was something else. But like I said. The, the, I'm, the I'm is, not talking from a position of, of knowledge. so.
1: Yeah, The 36 days of implanting are the OT3 incident 75 million years ago, which is called Incident yep. 2. Incident yep. 1 is the entry into the universe. And I, I hate to say this, but I have yet to meet anybody who did OT3 who did not have a misunderstood word on the word cherub. Because the first incident on the time track, however many quadrillion years ago, And I thought the quadrillion was a dance, actually, rather than a period of time. But (laughs) let's not worry about that. The first incident is a cherub blowing a trumpet. Mm -hmm. You know what a cherub is?
0: I thought it was an angelic baby figure with little wings.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cherubim (laughs) and seraphim, look it up. They are great big monsters.
0: Oh, well... I am going to have
1: changed its meaning. So that's why OT3 doesn't work. Because everybody got a misunderstood word. on change.
0: Oh, is that why? Yeah. Oh, I was wondering because I <laughs> thought it was just that it was absolutely batshit crazy. Okay. It, it
1: is also batshit crazy <laughs> because if you take that many drugs. And when I interviewed Virginia Downsborough, who rescued her, but she said, He was taking a shelf load of drugs. He was out of his mind. And keep your voice down because I have some people doing the course in the next room. You saw where it came from and you're still selling it, you know, but she was great, Virginia. You know, she was a charming woman. And she apparently told David Mayo what all those drugs were. She wouldn't tell me. In 2013, when I talked to David for the first time in sort of 17 years or something, um, I said, oh, he said, oh, yeah, she told me. I said, what were they? What were they? And he wouldn't tell me. I think probably because wow. he didn't remember or he'd written it down somewhere, and he never did tell me. So, But Demerol, right. phenobarbital, amphetamines, they were certainly on the shelf, that, I think we can say.
0: Interesting. And pinks and. I, green, I have to isn't. ask you, since this has never come up before, to ask, and since we're sitting here talking <laughs> about it in the in the course of the life story here. Yep. I've been told by a couple of people who were his um, in messenger positions in the later years, right? Well, actually, all through the seventies, actually, mm. from the beginning. Yeah. Um, that there were no drugs. And I, I wonder what, what's your what's your take on that? Because I'm surely you've heard that.
1: Yeah, well, the only person I've heard it from is, um, what's her name, who wrote, uh, uh, Janice Gillum. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Specifically, so the only, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's the only messenger who's told me that. Okay. Um, she also said that she only ever once saw him take a drink in 11 years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I've talked to somebody who on the ship saw him injecting drugs. During wow. the time she was a messenger, because she was a messenger from the very start. Um, and you've got this thing, well, how public would you be about something once you declared that, that it was not to be done? And how easy would it be? Now, I also talked with, I think, um, with Dr. Stephen Jarvis, who signed prescription pads for him when he was on the ship. Uh, he Hubbard himself tried to cash a prescription in 65 and East Grinstead for nembutol, phenobarbital barbiturate drug, Dr. Elrond Hubbard. Uh, we've been told that Eugene Denk signed prescription pads for him at the end. Um, we know that Vistaril was in his system when he died. It's in the, the autopsy. Well, there was no autopsy. It's in the post-mortem report. Um, piecing together from people, the, his primary drug was alcohol. Alcohol. Um, hannah saw him drunk even if janice didn't you know uh i'm also told however that the messengers used to uh, help him shower and she doesn't talk about that her mm-hmm. sister says that he tried to kiss her when she was 12 and, and i mean not just a little bit really on the-
0: yes so okay I, okay well, I'm not taking anybody's word as gospel, but I thought this was an appropriate time to ask about it because I, I wanted oh, to and see I, what I you said. I think would... it's a,
1: an extraordinarily important point.
0: That, yeah. Um,
1: um, you know, when I, I interviewed, um, well, th- th- there's material from Richard DeMille for Barbara Cloden, uh, going back, Clowden, Barbara Cloden, who's absolutely brilliant, um, just a, a wonderful woman. Um, there's an interview that I think I gave to, to- Tony Ortega, which he has up on, on The Bunker, which, which was given to me by the producer of The Secret Life of Alron Hubbard, which is still my favourite documentary about Scientology, after The Shrinking World of Alron Hubbard, which is Charlie Nairn's masterpiece. Um, but the, Barbara Coden said that while he was starting to write Science for Survival, when they were living together in Los Angeles towards the end of 1950, he still married bigamously to... Sarah, the second wife that he never had, according to Shrinkler. Very complicated. While they were living together, he was morose and depressed and lying in bed all the time and didn't know what to do to follow up the success of Dianetics. Of course, Art Sepos, the publisher of Dianetics, I think in October 1950, pulled it from the shelves because he said, the guy's a charlatan, it's a fraud. So even though he was making money, they'd sold 150,000 copies, Sepost was like, I'm a medical publisher, I cannot have this book out there. So Hubbard's going, I need something else to make money from. I can't think of anything. And she said he was drinking a bottle of scotch a day. He then kidnaps his own baby, Alexis, and runs off for a few weeks to uh, Cuba with Richard DeMille. And Richard DeMille told me he was drinking a bottle of rum a day. So how easy is it to pop a few pills when your 11-year-old messenger isn't looking? And... Did he have some tiny amount of conscience or was he going, if the 11-year-olds see me taking drugs, they might tell someone. And what state was he in? When we see him on films, when we hear him in lectures, he is stoned out of his crate almost every time. He comes onto the stage, he goes, what day is it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's true. He's always doing that at St. Hill in the lectures in the 60s. That's and right. Hannes...
1: Hannah said that this was something that we didn't know because most of the lectures aren't filmed. And she saw, you know, briefing course lectures in, I think, you know, 63, 64, 65. I'm not sure when she arrived there, but she said he would start the lecture, give the title, having worked out what day it was. And then he would, there'd be this weird exaggerated gesture that he'd make and he'd start telling a story. And you and I and many other people have noticed that the beginning of the lecture is about the subject. Then there's 30 minutes of him rambling, like people on drugs do, about something passed down the track or, or some retelling of some story that he's told with different information elsewhere, which is the thing that fascinated me as a biographer. He seemed incapable of telling a story the same way twice. So it's a Kodiak bear that he wrestled with in one, a polar bear in another, a brown bear in another. Now, that could be him giving us a clue about psychopathic disorder, the inability to tell the truth, that even retelling a story would be like telling the truth if you told it with the same details. He was a pathological liar. He, mm. And, of course, he said things only persist if they contain a lie. isness, as he said. So we could say, what is the lie in Scientology? And the lie that, that maintains Scientology is very simple. The lie is that it works, as Elron Hubbard says it works, as opposed to it working, as Elron Hubbard Jr. said, as Elron Hubbard intends it to work.
0: Exactly, that's right. It does work. It's just not working the way you think it's working. <laughs> he, he
1: exhibited the characteristics of a multiple drug abuser, an alcoholic. We we know that he had problems with drugs. Um, he did say to messengers. Uh, that he wished he could give up smoking and eventually of course he did but he smoked 100 cigarettes a day and found a knock on -on. and um
0: you know know, yeah yeah all valid points. points
1: amphetamines they just slip a few down and away they go and
0: yeah yeah yeah, it was it's 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 always been interesting because knowing what I know, knowing what we all know now about memory and stuff, right that that memory is malleable and memory is um, reconstructed. The,
1: the, the constructionist point of view, as psychologists call it, that yes, we reconstruct yeah. memory. It is not actually recorded like uh, video. Exactly.
0: Or, There's so far, zero mechanism has been found in here for a storage place for memories memories are spontaneously dynamically reconstructed when they are remembered and it is fascinating how altered they can become and of course how we tell ourselves stories i even went over this with uh with reckless ben uh in a earlier podcast was how they messed with him in a dianetics session and he had a completely different memory of a very important and almost fatal accident that had happened to him and it was only his friends who were there who had to correct him after his 10-hour Dianetics session where his memories had been completely screwed with. So I have to put that out there as a possibility, not as as any kind of a—I have to put that out there for my own memories— You know, that I have to be careful about my own memories, about things. There's some things I'm very, very sure about. But I'm at the point now, having learned what I've learned about memory, where I kind of, you know, don't go there so much with my personal story about things that might have happened that I'm a little shaky about because I know that my memory can be messed with. So uh, that's why you see me not do that, you know.
1: I have seen you not do that.
0: Yeah, you right? it right. <laughs> I'm not doing it right this second. So,
1: there's what's called the multiple drafts theory of memory, um, which says that every time you tell a story about, every time you recall a memory, you make a new memory.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so, a fish that was originally this big—that's right. Uh, the other one is the the famous one. That's usually cited is the Challenger study. That uh, in January 1986, Elrond Hubbard's death was knocked off the front pages when the Challenger exploded, and the, the astronauts aboard it, of course, all died. And that day, a professor had his students write down their, you know, what they'd seen, their observation of, of this terrible tragedy. And I think it was two years later that he contacted them and he had them write down again what their memory was of finding out about the challenger one of the guys famously said well that's in my handwriting but it's not what happened when he saw the original account
0: wow and he had written it down right that day yeah so two. And he had a total different later, memory
1: he has a different memory and that's part of the way we interact with groups of people because I'm a memory man that's one of the things I'm I'm known for there's regurgitation facts sometimes they're not true as well you know sometimes I get the date wrong or something like that and I unlike most people I'm actually really grateful if people will point that out because that's why I have a good memory because I'm willing to trust it and I'm willing to check it you know those two things are there I won't um, Because again, there was a wonderful study where they asked people to just say the first thing that came into their head in one group and to think about it in another. And they found that people were more accurate if they said the first thing that came into their head. Uh, I put that down to the education system that I will check myself over facts because teachers made me very nervous about information. So I know that seven times seven is 49, but I will quickly check what seven times eight is before I tell you, you know, because of that anxiety. And I think many people, it's said with autistic savants, that it's possibly they don't have this checking function. So sometimes like the rain man, um, they have astonishing memories, unbelievable, uh, memories way beyond anything I can do. Um, right. so that's right. oh, Chris, so you've got all of these things going on with memory. If you then add confirmation bias, How does this person want to see Ron Hubbard? Do they want to see him as the savior of humanity? Because the reality is he wasn't. Do they want to see him as a man who gave us magical powers? The reality is he didn't. When you look at the claims made for a clear in Dianetics, the 273 people that he claims in that book that he had checked these techniques on, it gets rid of asthma, allergies, short-sightedness. Later on, of course, he'll claim he gets rid of cancer, leukemia, and you can raise people from the dead. These are all lies. These are all lies. So my perspective of him is not, you know, when I spent time around him, yes, he shouted a lot and he swore a lot, but he he was, you know, the incarnation of Buddha. Once I found that he screamed and yelled a lot, I was already, you know, which only came to me very late on in my involvement, um, in fact, I, you know, returning to the story of well, John... Well, I
0: was going to set a nice segue right back. Yeah, exactly.
1: One of the, the first things that bothered me before I went down to St. Hill to do OT levels in was it 81, I think, um, a guy called Peter Warren, who was a Sea Org member, came and gave a talk at Birmingham. And he talked about his first day in the Sea Org. He'd arrived in the port. He'd gone aboard ship. He'd upset somebody. He'd been put over the side with a paintbrush on a plank, suspended from two ropes. So I'm going, they're in a seaport. The water is deep. He has no safety harness. That's the way I think about things. And he says, he's there for hours, painting the side of the ship. And night falls. And he's on a plank, suspended by two ropes. Night falls and he hears this voice and he recognises the voice. It's Ron Hubbard. Calling down to him, hey, mister, what are you doing down there? And uh, he says, I'm painting the side of the ship. Now, I'm expecting, he's going to say, what idiot put you over the side of the ship without a safety harness? Get him back up here immediately. But he doesn't. He says, put some lights on for him. That had a tremendous impact on me. I really
0: couldn't
1: figure that because that did not seem to be the greatest humanitarian in all history to me.
0: And this was a story being relayed to you in a public venue about Elron Hubbard's greatness. Yes, and how awesome he was. Yeah. And you're sitting there going, wait a minute, what? So so to cl- so to be, so to be clear, you had, you had done the training at St Hill. you were not super impressed by some of the overbearing types there, the Sea org yeah. attitude. You went back to Manchester. That place couple was of years
1: little... out a couple of years not really involved. We we, we okay. ran a little group where people did TRs and stuff, training routines. Yeah. And yep. we would feed them to the Birmingham organization um, to chew up. Uh, but I personally for two years did no more Scientology Then I did the renovations at Manchester. I did the class two course there and was told that I was um, a natural clear. And I yeah. did the grade processes very, fairly rapidly um, and audited a few people there. I, I feel very fortunate that I actually received very little auditing, far less than Charles Manson. Manson had 150 hours. Um, I had about 90. You know, in nine years, I had very little auditing because uh, I this do was, think 10 minutes.
0: And this was back when Natural Clear came out. That was a very short that that only lasted for a couple of years, by the yeah, way. Yeah, where's the money in that? Yeah, there's no money in that. So you you go in and you're like, oh, no, I was always clear. And they're not buying any of that bullshit now. Now you're going to be paying, 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 paying. Uh, I, John, yeah, this it's, it's funny because there was this little window of time. I think it was 78, 79, 80, where natural clear, past life clear. This became a real thing for a lot of Scientologists. The and they 80s. were skipping up to the OT levels very quickly, uh, which is something you can't do now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I remember Nora Bethcrest at um, at Toronto talking about, you know, age 14, I think it was being declared a last life clear and suddenly her status had gone up. But uh, I went down there, I, I did the sunshine rundown. I think I did that in Birmingham, in fact, I think after clear you were allowed to do that, which was, yeah, really. And then, but it was cheap. Then I did OC. Was, was,
0: was that the? Do you remember at the time if it was the uh, walk around and notice things kind of? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's literally taking a walk and looking at things. That's that's yeah. what the and, that, and you're be for pounds, that by the way. You, yeah.
1: You know. <laughs> um, but I, I got down. I had to do confessionals, um, which curiously I hadn't done. That it had never arisen that I needed any of this kind of stuff, and um, so I was told that I'd need to buy 24 Five hours of auditing at um, 100 pounds an hour you again when I got involved it was six pounds an hour you know the prices really they started doing this thing where they went up 10 percent a month in the UK and that was
0: um, it was all over it was that it was the solution to inflation according it to Elron Hubbard
1: kept on going in, in the UK forever um, <laughs> pretty much but yeah the solution to inflation indeed it was thought that the UK prices had fallen behind all of the other prices. So I think we got some extra. Um, And uh, Hubbard's, you know, mathematical skills were pretty low. He didn't realise that if you did this at 10% a month pretty quickly, you know, it's um, Zeno's path, isn't it? And (laughs) one grain of rice for each square of the chessboard and double it for each one. And you end up with a lot of rice, um, more than you can fit on, on a chessboard um so i bought the ot levels uh they first of all tried to tell me that that i hadn't paid enough i had to to pay like five times more and i explained i showed them the contract signed by the registrar david beale called beale's deals um they got they of course get two percent of what they sell so they're the only people who, who actually get to eat and have clothes and cars even sometimes um So they accepted that, yes, you know, we always deliver what we promise. They'd promised me at this ludicrous price, which was still about three grand or something. Then I'm told I've got to have by 25 hours of confessionals or I can't carry on. And I said, I don't need 25 hours of confessionals. I remember the auditor saying to me, well, what makes you think that? And so I named the commanding officer at St. Hill who told me that. And uh, eventually they accepted that the three and a half hours I had on account would do it. So I had my confessionals, um, which was. You was must
0: great. be an amazingly smooth talker because that is not an easy sell in a, any Church of Scientology at any time. In fact, it strikes me right now that there might have even been some, you know, some of that verbal tech. If it isn't written, it isn't true. Violation there because they should not have been taking your word for it. <laughs> I just find that funny.
1: Well, I could, I could quote Hubbard, you know, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I could always find the policy letter that would support my point of view, because let's face it, anything he said, he will have contradicted. So. <laughs>
0: Damn straight. That's Uh, exactly right. You were, you were spot on. I'm not, I'm not. It's not a criticism. It's just kind of funny to me, you know.
1: Well, and it's, you know, of course, I ended up talking a lot of people out, because I'm a smooth talker, and uh, (laughs) you know, what are you going to say? But you know, when they tried to recruit me into the C organization before, you know, in the couple of years before I was, I was banned from doing that, luckily. Um, though even that they waved for me actually I was invited to join Hubbard's personal staff after the LSD thing uh, go over the rainbow and I accepted I said I'd go and play drums in his band for for that bloody awful album that poor Chick career wasted two years of his life on you know one of the greatest musicians in the world spending his time thank you for listening (laughs) I write loads of spew um And the thing about the evil being, you know, about the priest persuading people that they've got devils and having to pay a vast vast sky high price, was it, for some priestly begons. And all they need to know is about the evil purpose. And all they need to know, it was L. Ron Hubbard's evil purpose. Exactly.
0: (laughs) For those of you who don't know, John's literally quoting L. Ron Hubbard lyrics from songs that were recorded in the 80s uh from his you know his lyrics or whatever the, the, eights, the 70s, professionals.
1: and um, the yeah. um the road to freedom it's called right. and, and it's well well worth laughing at it really <laughs> yes, is it the is. most dreadful. but i was asked to go and play drums on that and then they said um oh no, no you need to sign a seal contract and i said it's not going to happen <laughs> and that was the end of that but um so i you know i go and i i do my confessionals, which was very embarrassing because they'd assigned an order to me who was a friend of mine and and in female form. And uh, you don't like to talk about those kind of things with young ladies, you know. So I, about three and a half hours did it and I was ready. And I did OT1 and went, oh, really? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. So I got into Ot2 and you know oh you're kidding me You get the, the clearing course film.
0: now let's now let's go ahead and give the audience a little taste here because we have a port. Uh, yeah because Ot levels have also changed they've been a little malleable over the years. What was ot1 for you? Do you remember?
1: Well it, again it was like the sunshine rundown. it's just one of those walking around and noticing things that's, right. that's
0: right It's ridiculous that's right. Please go
1: on. OT2, what Hubbard had done was that um, grade six, the clearing course, the original OT1 and OT2 were all what are called goals, problems, masses. Now, the best example of these is given by Shakespeare, to be or not to be. The idea is that you'd be implanted with these double binds, and Hubbard knew about double binds, believe you me, And that would have made you incapable of making a decision. You'd be given a shock while being given the two opposite poles of what he called a goals, problems, mass. These were actually procedures that were developed in the late 1950s and 60s. And he then dumped these huge lists. And he said it was like digging a trench. You just had to go in there day after day after day. Remember, I interviewed... um, the first man who was held to have successfully completed the clearing course, uh, John McMaster, the world's first real clear, 1965. And he said to me, he said, well, I I don't know why he chose me, but one day he said to me, right, John, you finished. And so I attested clear. And, uh, he he did talk like that, by the way, (laughs) it was beautiful Durban accent. Um, and, as gay as anything you have ever met in your life. He, you know, he was. He wrote me a ferocious letter because I interviewed him and I said, uh, you know, it's okay to be gay. you know. And I, I wrote to him and said, there's even actually a group in LA that call themselves the Gay Theta Association. So it's fine now. It's not against the law. And I got a seven-page incensed letter explaining that he had never been homosexual in his life. I then had a conversation with Otto Rose, and he he called his secretary over and said, "What did John say to me on the phone?" And it was obscene, uh, but it was most certainly gay, you know, about what he wanted to do with Otto's lovely member. Um, but you know, he was still he was still caught up in you know the horrible way that homosexuals were treated for so long. Um, I got a phone call from a guy who was a stage designer in in Hollywood, a set designer in Hollywood, in the mid-90s. And this guy said, he said, I was one of the first 10 clears. And he said, seven of us were gay. Seven. And uh, he said, we used to call ourselves the queer clears. And he said, why do you think Hubbard chose us? And I'm going, come on, go figure. People he can blackmail, it's 1965
0: interesting take on all of that i had never heard any of that all i knew about was john mcmaster that's fascinating yeah
1: but what they had to do was go through these lists month after month after month after month and
0: ot2 takes a long time it's one of the it's one of the longer ones
1: well it didn't take me a long time i think i did two days on it and
0: uh, <laughs> well, Okay. Usually, for us normal mortals, it takes a long time.
1: <laughs> I just you know, I, I, they would. I think they were you know because in the natural clip, they wanted to push you through anything that was solo audited, anything you did to yeah. yourself. They wanted you through as fast as possible so that you could rack up some two hundred pound an hour stuff on That's OT right. and TV. OT one,
0: two, and three you do on yourself in a room with an e-meter it's just you and the command sheet and you have a procedure to follow and you follow it and you turn in a report every day as to what you're doing and they monitor your progress that way ot4 and ot5 are somebody else auditing you? And that's where the big bucks come in again. Uh, I think OT1, 2, and 3 now is as a package is about $25,000 or something. Wow. But they'll charge you about 4500 to $5,000 for a 12 and a half hour chunk of auditing for OT4 and OT5. Mm.
1: And, and so you
0: can see the escalation of prices very, very quickly.
1: Yeah. And and I mean, I, I took with Lillian Collins, who was married to the head of Collins Publishers, the biggest publisher in the world, uh, now Harper Collins. And she said to me, I, I always wonder why it was that it took me so much longer to do everything than anyone else. And I think she told me she'd spent a million pounds mm-hmm. Scientology. Uh,
0: yeah, kind of funny how those people with all the money have so many more folders. Of auditing. It seems than it seems the people right who though, don't.
1: somehow, doesn't it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the rich plant yeah. entity in heaven,
1: yeah. Um, yeah. So I I spent three days on OT3. Uh, that was on my. Two or
0: three? Three. We spent on two three. days on OT2,
1: three days on OT3. Where wow. I met Dina and the Body Thetans and all yeah. of that stuff. Then I went and attested OT3. Nobody had a problem with that. And then two days later, I went in and said, did nothing for me, you know. I'm and I expected I'll retread, you know, have to pay half and do it again. Uh, ethics, you know, all sorts of stuff. And the um, the, the salesman, the registrar, who before he became registrar had been the senior case supervisor, United Kingdom. He'd been the top auditor in the United Kingdom just a couple of months before. But he realised he could get two percent from selling things to people, and it was a better life. And he looked at me and he said, a lot of people find that. Now, that was an immense shock.
0: Yes, it was. Both that he said it and that it was true.
1: I then go and try, you know, what you need is OT4. So I borrowed the money for OT4. Twelve and a half hours, I'm through OT4. All of the little junky body thetans that have attached themselves to me have been healed. And they didn't have to pay anything for it. So I'm sure it didn't do them any good. Because free service, free fall. So the buddy Satan should have been got to pay for that, not me.
0: <laughs> okay, now I'm I am very remiss here because we have skipped over Xenu, and how am I not asking you about that? What you know, you're coming at this, you're Mr. Critical Thinking, you do see through a lot of bullshit, but you're still going along. And then you get the handwritten story from Hubbard, which I believe then, as in now, the course supervisors are there watching you like a hawk because they know this is going to be interesting and you read this and you look up and what happens?
1: Well, I looked up and a guy I knew had walked into the, the dungeon, which was this drab little place. Um, and, you know, halfway under the, what they call the castle of <laughs> some castle at St. Hill. I've seen real castles. Um, and this guy walked in and he looked at me and he could see I was reading ot 3 pack and he said, um, it's like Colin Wilson's mind parasites. I'm going, whoa, cause I'm reading this stuff and going, this is a bit weird, but he then quotes a novel that I happened to have read. So that was quite interesting about these little creatures that feed off your thoughts and something about that made me believe that there might be something in this that maybe he'd, you know, it was in fact.
0: Interesting.
1: It's a coincidence. I
0: don't yeah. think there's
1: more to it. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I'm introduced to Zenu and all of this stuff, and, and it's kind of gone off the rails, that through Dianetics, through the grade processes, I'm happy to believe in reincarnation, in past life memories and all of that, but the body Satan stuff starts bothering me a little bit, but you know, I talked to a guy um, a couple of years later, you know, after I'd left, Derek um, Geiler, and, and he, lovely guy. And he said that um, he was a fifties Scientologist. And he said, most of us, when we saw this stuff, went, he's he's gone around the bend, um, but you know, I thought I'll check it on the e-meter and it read. So I did it and I looked at him Derek Guy, I think. I looked at him and I said, did you ever check the E-meter? And he went, oh no, I didn't think of doing that. And I told him you know, about how the, the meter generates about half of the reeds because it's made from such cheap components. A friend of mine made one with all the most, just the, the jewel that they used to put the needle on cost more than all the parts from Arc Five E-meter. Just the diamond they used cost more than everything. They were using germanium transistors. I don't know what they are, but apparently it's a very bad thing to do. (laughs) Just the cheapest stuff. He was the meter repairman at St. Hill. So they just used cheap stuff. And they ran their meter with the same, with the bar recorder. And they went out to the bar while they were doing it. When they came back, there were twice as many reads on the Mark V as on what would later be called the Ability Meter. And they thought, oh, we've done something wrong. So the next time they didn't go to the pub, they brought their beer home and, and watched it. And they realized that Mark V produced half of the reeds that were coming out of it. About this t- Later on, there would be silver ceiling where all the meters were called back in because the carbon potentiometer, the volume control on, on the meter, basically was made of carbon and was shedding carbon dust and creating what are called rock slams, for which people were being sent to the Rehabilitation Project Force. And having seen e-meters that didn't have anybody plugged into them or any cans doing rock slams, I knew there was something wrong with them, you know. Uh, but they're a high precision instrument created by Volney, Ma- Elron <clears throat> Hubbard. Oh, just so ridiculous.
0: Ah, John, come on, get your facts straight here, man.
1: Yeah, yeah. The Volney e-meter. Yeah, the Matheson e-meter. Um, That's right. So I, you know, I, I did, I did it. I, I, kind of had misgivings. I went in and said, you know, I didn't really do anything for me. I don't have any supernatural abilities. And um, the in the pack itself, it said that the end phenomenon of OT three is um, huge affinity for everyone or something. This was one of the little things, and uh, I hadn't seen much of that, I must say. And so he said, you know. This guy says, oh, you need OT4, borrow the money, do OT4. A couple of days after finishing OT4, nothing reads on it, so it's finished. Needle's floating. My needle normally floats. I'm that kind of person. You know, what can I say? And um, I go in and say, sorry, <laughs> same again. Not.' And he says, a lot of people find that. What you need is OT5. So buy, I borrow money. 25 hours. Uh, I think two and a half thousand pounds, which was, you know, considering I'd I'd spent years working to get three and a half thousand to buy the rest, you know, um, and uh, it was it was awful. The um, the the guy auditing me, it's a guy called Mike Austin, um, smelled, and he couldn't open the window to the room. Now it's interesting that actually the window's opened onto the, you know, the, anybody could walk past. It was on a walkway. So people were doing OT session, OT five secret sessions. And anybody could stand outside the window and hear them, but he couldn't open the window. It was jammed. And I'm kind of going, this guy is an OT five auditor and he can't open a window and he smells. Oh dear. So I complained because you've worked out that that's the kind of girl I am. And, uh, you know, in a nice way, and I got Richard Reese. Richard Reese at the time was the senior case supervisor, UK. He only had two people who was auditing in the morning. In the afternoon, he did me, and in the morning, he did Van Morrison. Wow! He went to London and audited Van Morrison, who dedicated two, two of his worst. I mean, he's done many great albums. He really <laughs> has. But the eighties is a very slumped period. Yeah, exactly and the um, inarticulate speech of the heart is relatively inarticulate actually um wow. just any- as a but-
0: just as a point i, I looked up in 2500 pounds in 1979 is twelve thousand seven hundred pounds now
1: hmm. valuation
0: in well, terms it, of inflation it value it was 1981
1: so- if you want to get really
0: accurate. ah 81 okay good
1: okay. but but yeah i would think something similar applies because uh, inflation yeah, nine
0: thousand six hundred now
1: nine thousand six hundred pounds yeah just in case about... anybody
0: was wondering what kind of bucks are we talking about now have you got to go uh, off 12, and saved
1: twelve thousand dollars something like that hmm.
0: probably yeah. all. T- yeah oh yeah and then putting that into dollars yeah yeah yeah,
1: yeah. um while i was on ot5 and uh, richard reese by the way is the, when uh, bill clinton said that he'd known a scientologist when he was at oxford it was richard reese so if anybody wants to check out, he's sadly no longer with us. I must say that he had got his training routine zero down to the point where you could have thought his, he was made of wood. You know, and you go into a session with somebody. Now, me, if I'm trying to help somebody, I, I tend to smile and be encouraging. <laughs> so having somebody, I'll repeat the auditing question, you know, that he was like that right. all the time. Right. And it, it was... A- Unnerving. It's the way that a phlegmatic, uh, an apathetic person, you know, they don't have emotional responses. And um, I'm told that before he did the rehabilitation project, force, he didn't have this problem. So, um, and that he was actually. That doesn't surprise guy.
0: me. <laughs> yeah, doesn't Unless, surprise me at all.
1: While I was uh, doing OT5, when I got into Scientology in Birmingham, the, the person who actually owned the mission was Stephanie Ryburn, but she was away trying to find out how was it the American mission holders were making such huge amounts of money where they couldn't make anything in the UK. So she was, you know, Martin Samuels, Kingsley Wimbush, Bent Corridon, these legends who were making millions, uh, particularly Martin Samuels with the Delphi schools and all that uh, before David Miscavige uh, destroyed them all. Um, parallel, the other-
0: by the way, just another little point of parallel is she's going off to LA to learn about this stuff. That's where I am. 1980, 1981, my parents were Pasadena mission staff under these people you're naming, Carl Barney specifically, and these people were vastly successful with Scientology. They were making hundreds of thousands of dollars a shot. The missions they were running throughout California, which are now have been all converted to churches of Scientology, Santa Barbara, San Diego, Valley, all these churches used to be missions, and they were... Very successful under these guys. So, just another little parallel, be- you know, in our lives a little bit there. That thought I would throw out there.
1: Yeah, and it, and it's a, a story that you know we will be talking about in some detail soon because I have tapes of the Mission Holders Conference from 1982, which is the um, the gold. That's the that's I didn't realize that I'm the I believe the only person in the world who has, has an actual tape recording of the Mission Owls Conference in 1982, but we'll talk about that elsewhere. So I hadn't met Stephanie until she and her husband Don came back to England just before I went to St, a few weeks before I went down to St. Hill. And when she looked at me, she looked disgusted. You know, she she was an OT3. She was a class eight, trained by Hubbard. And she just, you just got that vibe, you know that. And she's an OT, so you know that she's reading your thoughts. So you'll pretty soon start thinking something disgusting. You know? It's just the way it is. And she wouldn't use my name. She never smiled at me. Here she is. We, we've not met since. And she comes out of the OT5 waiting room, or the new era Dianetics for OTs waiting room, as we have it then, Med for OTs. Nots. Why is solo nots not called snots? <laughs> um, she comes out <laughs> beaming at me and, and says, John, she actually uses my name and she's smiling at me. And she says, isn't it wonderful that, that Ron found something to clean up the mess that OT3 makes? She'd done OT3 15 years before under L. Ron Hubbard's supervision. And she'd spent... Damn. The reason that she was looking at me the way she was looking at me was because she'd been screwed up by ot3 which Damn. is not Is not infrequent at all he may not have yeah. used drugs when people were looking but he sure as hell screwed up a lot of people's lives um so i um. I, I came away from that the, the next episode was uh, having lee lawrence who i'm willing to uh, make pejorative statements about on any day of the week I'm, I'm pretty sure he's no longer with us. He'd be about 112 if he were. Um, he was a moneylender of of the the worst kind, and he was the the same registrar who sold me OT4 and OT5. Now wanted me to borrow seven thousand um, pounds to do so. What well, that's about thirty thousand now, about forty thousand dollars, what have you? And they got the cheque, and it came round. And they spent thirteen hours in my apartment trying to convince me to take this check to pay for, you know, whatever O T six and seven or whatever it was. And this would be at thirty percent interest
0: per annum. Holy cow, thirty percent. Yeah. Yeah, With thanks. Penalty. No thanks.
1: Yeah, so I had a thir- thirteen hours with these guys. I don't. I don't think we had anything to eat during that time. You know, it's uh, and uh, but I showed them the door. I, you know, and it thing things were. You know, it, I wasn't really all that happy. I still believed somehow that Hubbard had the answer, but by this time, noise is starting to be made. We're we're starting to hear that. This terrible thing has happened in San Francisco, the Mission Holders Conference, where the wealthy mission holders have basically had their missions stolen from them. I believe Martin Samuels even had his Rolex watch stolen from him. Uh, Ben Corridon's bank account with $900,000 in is gone. Uh, His $2 million building, which I did help him get back, and Ben, if you're watching this, I'd still like you to pay the bill, mate. You know? because that wasn't really very good, was it? You know, here we are. That was 1991. Um, Still, bless him. What can you say about mission holders? They're people who made a lot of money (laughs) by getting people enslaved in Scientology.
0: Yes, they did. Yes,
1: they did. we, We saw David Mayo was declared suppressive, and it had been made very clear that he was the heir apparent. Hubbard had... Made it clear that this was the guy that was going to take over from him. And we'd had the little film with with David Moe in the, the sort of not really acting very well with the, the Homburg hat on and the suit. And, you know, they're kind of somehow meant to be a Bugsy Malone gangster, I think, with the great. It music- was the, yeah. uh,
0: I think that film was called The Secret of Flag Results. Yeah. And he was acting like the senior tech guy or the senior the senior case supervisor guy. and the movie I, I was only told about it years later. I never saw it because it was out of commission by the time I came into Scientology formally in yeah. 1985 where I start really taking classes and stuff, Mayo's name was already mud at that point, And all the things connected with him had been, had been stripped or taken out or taken away. And that film was history. And so then people were talking derogatorily about it, but at the time that it came out, it was this amazing film. And isn't David Mayo such a wonderful guy, you know, cause he was kind of the hero of the piece.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and Hubbard yeah. had put him there. It's the only one of the tech films I ever saw. You know, oh, that's the, funny.
0: <laughs> none of the others
1: ever seemed to be released. I, I interviewed lots of people who'd worked on them. Yeah, uh, but They were all still around at that time. Um, wow. But, yes, in it, he, he does this thing, the, this, now children, if this is lost, you'll know what happened. About the, the SPs and how the suppressives and how they'll take things over. So I did find it funny when we suddenly get this, Suppressive person declare on Mayo, followed by the story of a squirrel in which we are told that Ron Hubbard has said David Mayo was the bird dog in the control room. So as my, my mother, who I said was involved for eight years in Scientology, she said, well, how is it that Ron Hubbard could work with this guy for 25 years and not notice he was a suppressive
0: <laughs> your uh, mother was smarter than me. I never thought to ask that question when all that was going down.
1: It's a matter of which way your attention is pointed. That that the way that pe- we're conned by magicians and conjurers is by our attention being well. Look at my hand over here while I'm picking your pocket with the other one. You mm-hmm. know. Um. We, we were, you know, we we weren't we weren't looking. We we didn't know how to look, and, and we're gradually learning how as we get older. Um, so that started coming down and uh, Jeannie Hansen arrived in East Grinstead saying that bad things were happening. And um, John Ziegel started sending out tapes, I think there were four of them in the end. These, these little cassette tapes, they were all over the place with people telling their stories. Um, I got Elron Herbert Jr. Nibs to make one, which was great and went all over the place. That's my contribution. Um,
0: In case anybody out there is wondering how you mass distribute information as a private citizen back in the day before the internet and YouTube existed, yeah, that's how you did it. You made tapes. (laughs) little cassette
1: tapes, which you'd send out all over the place. Now, Mm -hmm. I still have all of mine, and uh, that's why I still have the Mission Holders Conference, and uh, Tony Ortega, I think, told me he'd been looking for it for three years. He'd heard those.
0: Oh, I, you have gold. I we, You and I are definitely talking about that tape after the show. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: and it's got the David Miscavige section on it, which was never released oh. in transcript, uh, where he oh, talks that's about good. the original Founders Bulletin, which is one of my favorites, um, which is came out in 1982, red on white, just like a Hubbard issue, all the heading, everything perfect like a Hubbard issue. And it basically says... I'm the original Alren Hubbard. I was driven out of the body by the evil guy you've been following. <laughs> Great.
0: And uh, uh, definitely... again, news to me, man. I can't wait to get this. Stuff. I love this little stuff. This is yeah, awesome.
1: It, it's, it's what keeps this this work endlessly fascinating. Isn't
0: exactly, it? isn't oh, it? Isn't it? Another st-
1: crazy story, you know. Oh. So, um,
0: every time you think, every time I have never found. In all the years of my life and I guess I get to say there's quite a few of them at this point I've never found a statement that does that just keeps on giving like this one which is Scientology is always worse than you think. I've never found that to be like it always just keeps proving itself as I do this and it's been years now and I still can't find a bottom you know. So
1: they, they i was talking with jim beverly when we first started conspiring to set up do the getting clear seminar the five-day seminar in in toronto he said to me you know he's written i think he's written 18 books or something now he said that he he really just this you know this is sort of 2014 he really wanted to write that book about scientology because it was so much more interesting than anything else he's written about the moon is the jehovah's witnesses all sorts of Christian things, um, but, but nothing has the kind of pure amount of stories. These, as You know, this astonishing human being, Elrond Hubbard, this little fat kid with spots that nobody liked, you know, that had no friends, that was terrified of horses, according to a guy who was at school with him when he was 15, a guy called Andrew Saunders, something like that, who Russell Miller interviewed you know and yet was breaking broncos at, at, while in the womb or, or what have you, you know? <laughs> Yes, they, you know and uh, you know he he goes to china on a little couple of little holidays with his his family and he therefore is studied with with gurus in the western hills of china you know the only trouble with china is there are too many chinks there his contemporaneous handwritten journal says and the la- the the uh, lamas had voices like bullfrogs that's his st- that's the only statement in the diaries which of course Scientology put into a court case thinking they would never go public and on a day when the seal was lifted I was given a copy so that, that's my gift to the world the diaries about teenage diaries of Elrond Hubbard um they, they smell of all the baths they didn't take that was his comment about Chinese people wow uh, and he did use the word wow. "dukes" throughout to talk about foreigners. Um,
0: whatever. Yeah, Hubbard wasn't shy about his casual racism. That's for sure.
1: No, he he was sexist. He was racist. Um, anything you want. You know, I, the, remember the one in South Africa about Bantus that mm-hmm. uh, if you wanted to pull an over to crime from a Bantu? Then it would be not stealing
0: something. <laughs> that's right. Oh, he had a horrible opinion of people down there.
1: Yeah, and and, you know he complains when people say that South Africa was a police state and he developed the technique of using the e-meter on a person by strapping the electrodes under their arms or putting plates on their feet so that you can interrogate them, which, of course, later led to people being executed in Morocco when the king of Morocco used the techniques, which uh, um, John McLean... Talked about at Toronto. I think for the only time ever, he talked about why he'd left the seal because he could see that, having persuaded the king of Morocco to use an e-meter to security check his intelligence people, some of them would be killed, and they were. You know the benefits yep. of fine Did Elron Hubbard use drugs? Does that really matter? <laughs> did Elron Hubbard screw people up? Yes, he did. Was he a savage, angry narcissist? Yes, he was. No. These, things, right. these things matter I saw the story of a squirrel about David Mayo It I couldn't believe that Ron Hubbard had written the statements attributed to him, bird dog in the control room things like that I later discovered he had that he was very much still in control certainly through 1983 when the dementia I think started to take him away completely uh, for periods of time from, from what I've been able to establish from people.
0: I agree with you on that from everything I've read.
1: Yeah. And Miscavige was just somebody who did what he was told. He had no authority, he had no power of any kind, but he was the communication line to Pat Broker. who was the communication line to Hubbard. So I started looking at this stuff and I, I remember I, I got very sick. Uh, September '83, early September. It, 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 I was physically bedridden. I think it's the last time I've ever, ever been bedridden with any condition. Um, it was the doctor. A doctor believed at the time that I had meningitis. My symptoms were so severe, and came out in the middle of the night. And it wasn't. It, it was basically this. It had suddenly hit me that I belonged to an organisation which was exactly the opposite of what I believed. That I still believed that Hubbard was, was good, but I believed he was gone and it became necessary. So what I did was I wrote a little list of, of questions, each of which had a policy letter reference attached to it, which basically, if you looked at them, showed that the current management, I didn't realize it was Hubbard, were actually violating policy very severely. I gave this, in fact, to the the doctor who came out in the middle of the night to see me because she was a Scientologist, and she reported me to ethics, which was nine years, I think, there may have been three ethics chits or knowledge reports in nine years uh, in the stacks of commendations in my ethics folder. I never had a PTS rundown. I'd never, never been any negative suggestion. Um, certainly...
0: Okay. Let me ask you real fast, actually. Let's let's address this for a second, because this speaks also to the conversation I had with my mom about the 70s and 80s Scientology versus what it's become. Were you ever, I mean, other than that three-and-a-half-hour sex check you got, was there ever any talk about masturbation or controlling your sex life in any way during that no. period? Right. No. right. And that was pretty common and universal at the lower levels, right? Because all that crazy, heavy ethics stuff... Uh, hadn't really hit yet. That was Hubbard, but it was also Miscavige, you know, and you're, and you're talking about the time when that transition started happening.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are, there are variant periods, as as you know, Mm -hmm. um, the, when Hubbard put to sea in 1967, 68 with the sea project, the original 19 people, you can see if you, if you look at the shrinking world of Oren Hubbard, you can see the state that the sea organization are in. and, And it, it's pretty awful. You know, you can see. Oh,
0: her. no doubt. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. The Sea Org guys, let's be clear. And, and in case I was unclear just now, the highest levels of Scientology have always been screwed. I, anywhere near L. Ron Hubbard's in, inner circle. And you were in danger almost all the time because of Hubbard's vindictiveness, if nothing else. And he was a vindictive dude. I mean, that guy was ruthless. And yeah, he didn't
1: carry drugs with people either.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he was he was just a bad guy. So ooh, ooh. being being close to him was always dangerous. Being in the Sea Org was absolutely insane from day one. Um the lower levels of Scientology, the missions, the orgs, that hadn't that that had not yet filtered down. The management structure that we now see, that was built in the seventies and main and again mainly reinforced through the eighties. So so this was all kind of coming into, into you know, as far as the, the shit rolling downhill. It took a few years for it to start rolling down. And this is what we're talking about now.
1: Well, I came in just after what was called the Battle of Britain, which was in the summer of 74, when about half of the UK public were decided to leave because Alex Sibirsky, also known as Berserksky. Had come down, put up a marquee at St. Hill, got everybody in, and said, You can't leave until you've written a postulate check, a check that yep. you look at payment. And I did trace that story. He was briefed by Diana Hubbard to do this, and she was briefed by Ron Hubbard to do it. Uh, exactly. You have cutouts if you're a mafia don or any kind of don, <laughs> the Don who's running America at the moment, but we won't get into that. Um, so what I like to think of him as though the Don, not the Donald. Um, You can cut that bit out Um, (laughs) if if you value your life. Um, So they had lost a huge amount of the membership, and so they're actually really nice through the 70s. And it's only when Hubbard realises that the Guardian's office – going to prison, including his wife. His wife signs the stipulation of evidence, 217, 219 pages, conf- the longest confession I've ever read in my life, so that he will not be indicted. He then refuses to ever speak to her or communicate with her again. That's her reward for going to prison on his behalf. And he becomes utterly paranoid that they're going to catch him. And so the paranoia brings up a a new system, which is basically that now the messengers, the teenagers who are with him, they're the people he trusts. He doesn't trust anybody else. And he's got to get rid of the Guardian's office. And that's where Miscavige takes power. And the mission holders then are thought to be conspiring with the Guardian's office because they've had this meeting where the Guardian's office people have admitted they've been spying on them on Hubbard's behalf. And uh, so they're all matey. And so Hubbard is frightened that the Guardian's office and the mission holders will splinter, and cre- which is, of course, what he made happen.
0: Exactly. Literally,
1: all the big mission holders were either thrown out or people like Sarge Gabode in Palo Alto or Lake Corridor Riverside set up independent groups. And as Jesse Prince said at Toronto, we, we were the independents. I was briefly an independent for a few months there. We were actually getting more people up the bridge with, you know, in East Grinstead. I think we had seven people who were involved with doing, they had 180 at St. Hill and they were getting less people trained and less auditing hours than we were because of this paranoid espionage structure, which is, you know, the flag rep watches the and Hubbard communicator is watched by the assistant guardian. They're all reporting to make sure that nobody takes any of the money out which, of course, is funny because when Jesse Prince did his final confessional on David Miscavige, which he does talk about at Toronto for anybody who's willing to pay the $3 to watch it. Oh, you mean, what can I say? Jesse talks about doing this confessional on Miscavige where Miscavige is crying when he comes into the room. Hubbard has ordered a confessional. And what comes out, according to Jesse, is that Miscavige admits that he and Pat Broker have been taking money from Hubbard's private account and going whoring and gambling in Las Vegas with her, then Pat Broker stops the report from getting to Hubbard. So, Bing.
0: and, and that's how it worked.
1: With the guy in charge being a guy who is uh, probably suffering from a a mental condition of some sort, one might say. But anyway, yes. returning to the last bit of, of my <laughs> exit, I was you know an ethics report was made that I'd done this thing. I then was visited by um, a man called Bevan Priest, and he somehow managed to get past my wife into the bedroom where I was asleep, because, as I say, I sleep till noon normally. And I woke up with this guy saluting me, saying, would I host a meeting with Captain Bill Robertson um, at the Crown Hotel in three days' time? Because John Mace had gone back to Australia, and he'd organized it, and Bevan didn't really know what he was doing, and would I do it, please, sir? And so I went, yeah, okay. <laughs> and that's a good point, because that's where I left, October 1983. And that meeting, you can still find it online, bits of it, with Captain Bill shouting at people, it was brilliant. But that's worthy of a whole episode of it on its own. In fact, the Let's sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky was originally a book called The Scientology War, and it was about Captain Bill. It was about the independence and how we left and how, uh, Collins wanted to publish it. The guy who wanted to publish it fought for three months with the editorial committee to try and get it published because he said it was obvious from reading it that I was still brainwashed.
0: Awesome. Wow.
1: So we will be publishing that book later. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i would love to see that just just to get there, just to get I the still, headspace you know
1: became just part of a chapter in the end the whole book because i realized i've got to explain to the non-scientologist reader quite a lot of things as to why the markabians had invaded the planet in switzerland and we're going to take the planet over by selling gold in 1986 and we all got to watch out which captain mill when he wasn't dressed up as a nightclub singer in a sparkly gown singing songs to run and to, uh, these are other stories these are other stories which get
0: to. yeah we're going to we're going to definitely get get there cuz it's crazy stuff i mean that like you said every time you think you've seen bottom there's something else to talk about with this stuff and it really is impressively horrible
1: Look, um I mean-
0: And I really
1: really should be sick and tired of it, you know, because, (laughs) you know, this is now, what, 45 years of my life. And it lures you back, you know.
0: Exactly. They pull you back in. Um, Okay, folks, here's what we're going to do. You know, John's story, of course, is action-packed, and there is a ton of stuff here, and we have not actually even got halfway through it. And we've gotten to the point now where John officially has left Scientology. And so what we're going to do is we're going to split this up into a couple parts. And so we're going to do part two in a, in a couple weeks or, you know, when we, uh, when we get that done and get it to you guys. We're not going to make you wait for a long time. But <laughs> But, um, but, yeah, we want to get this done, and we want to have the time to give it justice, right? I mean, it took me, you know, like, what, eight hours to tell my whole personal story. I want to give John the justice of telling his whole story, too. So, um, so we're going to wrap up right now. But um, if you have... Any questions comments or feedback about this episode so far be sure to leave it in the comment section at YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com and I will be posting this and John will see it and perhaps he will comment on some of your questions as, on YouTube as, after we post this thing and we will get on with the rest of this fascinating story and uh, and see about getting it all out to you. So
1: I'm happy to, to if, if people have questions, I'm happy to do a piece on my own channel to answer whatever questions they have, uh, as long as they're not obviously too personal. You know, but I, I can't tell you how big Elron Hubbard's member was. You know. Or
0: anything <laughs> I can't Excellent. Well, let's put it out here then. How do people reach you directly, or how do they, how do people reach out to you with questions?
1: Well, I have a YouTube channel, John Ateck Family and Friends, and um, pretty much if somebody comes into the comment section there, I presume. This piece will go on, on your channel and, it, you know, if, if you sort of sort out any questions that people have, pass them over to me and, and yep, I will yep. seek to answer them. I just had a friend actually send in some questions which I have answered, which, which we'll be putting up in the next week or two. So um, and I think it's a good way to go because, you know, satisfying people's curiosity, they, there always are those other little questions and, and I'm very happy to, to speak to that.
0: Excellent. Good. Okay, folks. And once again, of course, as John's reminding us, he has his own YouTube channel. So please do go over there and hit that subscribe button because you will not be disappointed. John's content is interesting, informative, and educational, and something that you guys should be checking out. So that all being said, thanks for coming around. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.